It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 414 for October 12th, 2014. This week, because phishing attacks depend on social engineering, they are harder to defend against than normal malware. If there's a developer, designer, photographer, publisher, or videographer who isn't excited about the latest from Adobe, you should check to see if they're still breathing. And in short circuits, AMD gets another CEO. Talking to your car is unsafe. The PC market that has been sluggish for several years may be about to open up again. And I picked up Walter Isaacson's new book about the people who invented computing this week. I think you'll like it. Protecting against viruses and malware isn't easy, but it seems to me that compared to protecting against phishing, it certainly seems easier and more straightforward. Because phishing depends on social engineering, the only real protection is the intelligence and caution of the user. We'll talk with an expert about how you can protect yourself and your computer. I show on the TechBiter Worldwide website an example from an idiot spammer. I had been receiving messages about the Ford dealer Columbus Day clearance sales for quite some time, most of them promising 50 to 90% off the manufacturer's suggested retail price. Right. But then the spammer scammer apparently decided to give General Motors a try and change the subject to Chevy, but he left Ford in the introduction and then slid back to Chevy for the rest of the message. Duh. But to slide back around to phishing attacks... Sky King is the consumer product leader for the Zone Alarm division of Checkpoint Software. I wonder if he thinks my assessment of the dangers of phishing attacks is accurate. Yeah, you know, my, my philosophy these days for, for myself is you know, trying to identify every single phishing attempt that comes in is just a losing proposition. I think phishing attacks are getting so good uh, and so specific that, that they can be nearly impossible to detect. and. It's the kind of thing where if, if you know you get a hundred phishing emails and, and you're totally vigilant and, and up on everything, ninety nine times of the hundred you you know you maybe you'll be able to be able to identify it, but the hundredth time it's just going to look too legitimate or you're not going to be thinking correctly. You're just going to click through and and you know all it takes is is one one of these to get through and this kind of game over. Well, it wasn't too many years ago that phishing attempts were you know really pretty easy to spot. There were misspellings, the logos were wrong, the graphics were wrong. Uh, they sounded like they were written by somebody who had a very tenuous grasp of the English language. But these days, as you said, the, the, these guys are getting better. Most of the phishing messages that I see today actually look pretty realistic. They have the right logo. They've you know, been edited. They've been proofed. They look like they're legitimate. And, you know, they want you to click a link. There are some people who suggest that you simply never click a link. But that seems to be a hard message to get through to people. Other than simply ignoring the link, what else can somebody do? So you just stole my suggestion. <laughs> you know, for myself, I, I just never click on a on a link in an email because I think, you know, like you said, they, they used to be totally obvious. They'd be bad grammars, misspellings. You know, they would come from companies that you've never done business with. Like you'd get a phishing attack from, I don't know, the Bank of Central Nebraska or something. You know, it's obviously something that's not pertinent to you. And it's easy just to filter out right away. 
Um, but I think these days, as more and more data breaches are occurring and in the news, uh, you know, I'll just pick on Chase since that's the most recent example. If, if Chase gets breached and they lose all their customer data, they may issue a new credit card number and you may have to change your Chase.com or your JP Morgan password. But, you know, you're still using the same email address. You're not going to, you know, and you have the same physical address. You're not going to move houses because, you know, Chase got hacked. And this is all data that the, the fishers are getting their hands on. So, you know, they know your name. They know your email address. They know your physical address. So it's just getting harder and harder to identify what's a legitimate email and, and what's a phishing attack. You know, so, so the, the phishing attacks that are coming out now are, are a lot more targeted. Anytime you get an email from your bank or Apple or Google or et cetera, the safest thing to do is, is not click on the link. And if, you know, if my Bank of America or Apple tells me that my account's locked or I need to change my password or something, I, I won't click on the link. I'll just navigate directly to bankofamerica.com. And if I need to change my password, it'll tell me right there I need to change the password. But as you said, uh, that, that is kind of a hard message to get across and it is a hard habit for, for people to, to get into. So as far as tips for identifying phishing attacks, if you're specifically trying to look for them, uh, I would say one, you know, anything that's asking for personal information, account information, a password should immediately raise a red flag and, and make your threat level go up. The second thing that should kind of raise your awareness level is any kind of alarming email you get from a company you do business with. So if it says your account has been blocked or your account has been locked out or, you know, your account suspended or you need to reset your password, Sometimes these are legitimate, but but it should definitely uh, raise your awareness level and raise a red flag. I'd say that second couple of things to look for in the email, look at where the email is coming from. So look at the sender address. And this is kind of getting harder because Gmail will obscure a lot of the, the sender information. So you, you have to kind of drill down to see some of it. But look at the email address that's being sent from. Is it from a, you know a free email service like Gmail or Hotmail? Or is it actually from your bank? And even this is difficult because if I get a phishing attack from eBay, the, the fishers are going out and, and they're looking for all the different variations of a domain name they can register. So they'll register eBay-security or eBay-this, eBay-that, or look for slight misspellings and variations. And, you know, sometimes these domain names are legitimate and there actually may be an eBay security instead of eBay.com. So there's, there's just really no way to know. But uh, looking at both the, the sender's address uh, for anything that looks like it deviates from the, the company's standard main domain name, uh, as well as looking at all the links. And, you know, you, you still can't even trust the, the links. It may look like it's going to ebay.com, and ebay.com may be underlined like a normal hyperlink or, you know, accounts.ebay.com, uh, you know, but you should always mouse over it. And, and look at what your browser telling you the actual destination domain name is because uh, oftentimes, more often than not, an efficient email when it says, you know, you're going to apple.com, if you mouse over it, it it's some random domain that, that you've never heard of in your life. You'd probably expect Apple uh, not to be located, for example, in Romania. Exactly. Along, along perhaps a, a different line, you receive a message from somebody you know. There's an emergency. They're they're in London, or they're in Hong Kong, or they're in Istanbul, and they've been robbed. Uh, of course, they know this is an imposition, but could you just send them a little bit of money, wire it via Western Union, so that they could pay their incidental expenses until the bank comes through with their new credit card? Well, this is really not so much a case of phishing, more like just a case of simple fraud. But how does how does something like this happen? How do these people get your friends? 
email address. And how did they get your email address? On one level, there's, there's just how did they get my email address and how do they know about me? And there's so many ways that, that you're putting your information out there. It's, it's, it's pretty mind-boggling whether it's, you know, just people scraping the web for email addresses or Facebook security is so hard to understand. And it's so easy to, I, I just had a incident in my family where one family member thought they were saying thing to another family member and the other family members couldn't see and then other family members saw. And it's just, I tried to explain them how Facebook privacy settings work and it's just totally mind boggling. So Fishers and scammers and, and fraud audits can, can go and see who your friends are, you know, and then send something to you that purports to be from somebody you actually know. And, and I know people this has happened to. It's, it's getting more and more common. You just have to be really careful with your privacy settings on all your social media sites and, and just be careful with the, what kind of information you're putting out there. I, you know, all the new location-aware apps and, and everything that's coming out, I, I think people's sense of privacy is slowly eroding and maybe there's nothing to do against but uh, definitely tightening your privacy settings on all your social media sites is, is a good first step. There's a, another kind of uh, phishing message that comes along. Often it uh, occurs following a disaster of some sort, uh, claiming to be collecting money to aid victims of a flood or an earthquake or a tsunami. Exactly. Uh, what, kind of can, what kind of precautions can you take on something like that to, to make sure that if you're going to make a donation that it's to a legitimate cause? Never clicking on a link in an email. If I, if I want to make a donation to a legitimate cause, there are reputable websites where you can search for, you know, good nonprofits, check with the Better Business Bureau, or, you know, just be safe and, and go to redcross.com. Uh, but definitely don't click on, on Facebook links or email links. So the, the, the bottom line here seems like it's just don't click that link. Uh, that, that's my advice. I mean, that's going to save you from 99.999% of, of all these problems. Another another red flag is anything with an attachment. You know, your, your bank's usually not going to send you a PDF, and it might not be a phishing attack, or it might be a phishing attack combined with uh, exploit and, you know, in PDF. And as soon as you open the link, not only are you getting phished, but you have now you have malware running on your computer that can be sniffing out personal information to send you even more phishing attacks. It's enough to be rather discouraging. Yes. That's Sky King. He's the consumer product leader for the Zone Alarm division of Checkpoint Software. Be sure to check the TechBiter Worldwide website directly under the interview you'll see something that isn't an email and might not even be fraudulent, but it's questionable. The message appeared as an advertisement on a download page. It's not a message from Windows, even though it says Windows Update. It's designed, though, to look like one, and in my mind, that's fraud. The dialog box shows a Restart Now button and a Postpone button, an X button at the upper right-hand corner that should close the window, the trick is, though, none of those buttons does anything, and if you click anywhere on the rectangle, you'll follow the link that's attached to it. What happens if you click the box? I don't know. I decided not to find out. This would be an incredible time to be an illustrator or a designer, or a filmmaker, a book publisher, magazine editor, an audio specialist. If you touch anything that involves creating any kind of media, this has to be a great time to be alive. This week's Adobe Max conference reminded me of a time in the late 1980s 
when I was creating advertising materials for a software company. I would write copy, run it through a program I had written to count the characters and give me an approximate length in inches for the content. I'll come back to all this in a little bit, but first, what's so cool about all these updates from Adobe? Two years ago, I cautiously said that Creative Cloud seemed like a good idea. No small number of creatives pushed back, though, saying it costs too much. Actually, it costs less if you're somebody who buys every single update, or that they didn't want to do all their work online. You don't have to. Or they just opposed the software rental model. Earlier this year, Adobe released the second version of Creative Cloud, along with several mobile apps for iPads. At this week's Adobe Max, they released the next iteration of Creative Cloud, and they updated mobile apps for iPads and iPhones. Yes, iPhones. Not yet Android or Microsoft devices, unfortunately, but the word is they're coming. Sometime. And those mobile apps are no longer just freestanding applications. Because of the Creative Cloud and an enhanced Creative Profile function, they make it possible to capture, create, and edit photos, illustrations, publications, and even videos on a phone. On a phone. So I feel like designers are at a remarkable intersection where creativity meets technology and everybody wins. Watching the presentations at Adobe Max really made me wish that I could take all this technology back to the 1980s. I can't even begin to imagine what I might have done with it then. But I certainly can imagine what creatives around the world will be able to do with this incredible technology today. This is a big update. I couldn't even begin to explain all of the new features of all of the new components of Creative Cloud in a single program. In fact, I couldn't even begin to describe all of the new features in any single component of Creative Cloud in a single program. So I'm not going to even try. There'll be time for details later. For now, I thought I'd just mention the five bits that lit a rocket under my chair. It was hard to pick just five because everything in the Creative Cloud suite has been updated. And then there are all those new and updated mobile apps to consider. The mobile apps are enough to make me wish I had an iPhone. But because I don't, they give me something to look forward to when the mobile apps are eventually ported to Android devices. So here we go, Super Hit 1, to borrow from the lexicon of the 1960s Top 40 stations. Super Hit 1, 1, 1, 1, 1. The conversion of Dreamweaver Creative Cloud from a 32-bit application to a 64-bit application is the chart topper. I have two reasons for ranking the 64-bit Dreamweaver number one. First, it was unexpected. Video and photo applications absolutely need the memory and computing power that a 64-bit architecture exposes. Recent additions were clearly pushing Dreamweaver to near the limitations of a 32-bit system. But I'd expected it to continue on the 32-bit platform until possibly, oh, maybe the third or fourth iteration of Creative Cloud. And second, having now opened some complex web pages using Live View, which has also been enhanced in this version, it's very clear how important that extra power is going to be to website designers. Second on my hit parade, but probably first on just about everybody else's, is the array of mobile apps that tie to and work with the desktop applications. It's enough to make me want an iPhone and an iPad or, as I said earlier, at least to make me wait very impatiently until Android versions of the apps become available. 
Comments by Adobe's Senior Marketing Director for Creative Cloud, Scott Morris, make clear how much faster Adobe is moving these days. The second iteration of Creative Cloud was released in June, and now, in October, the company has released updated versions of every single desktop application and has thoroughly overhauled mobile apps that were released just a few months ago. The apps, by the way, are free, and they do have considerable utility even without the desktop applications. That said, it's clear that Adobe's underlying strategy is to tie all of the pieces together so that the company becomes an essential integral part of the designers' lives, no matter where those designers are and no matter what time it is. Two new capture apps, and one that's been rebranded and updated, enable the ability to create brushstrokes to capture vector images from any object that can be scanned by a phone's camera, and to extract color palettes from real-world objects. Each of these captured components can then be synchronized via a hub that Adobe calls your creative profile so that they're available on all of your desktop and portable devices. Line and Draw connect to Adobe Illustrator. Sketch, Mix, and Mobile connect to Photoshop. Clip connects to Premiere. No, you can't turn your iPhone into a video editing suite. But the thought of being able just to edit and cut together even a rough cut outside of a full editing suite on a large and powerful desktop system was completely unthinkable until about a week ago. At Adobe Max, Senior Vice President and General Manager for Digital Media, David Woodwani, told the approximately 6,000 attendees from all over the world that there is no better time to be a creative. Indeed, the possibilities are so exciting that I can't imagine any designer would fail to be amazed after passing through this little intersection of science and artistry. Super Hit 3! Photoshop's new ability to extract assets. Well, it occurs to me that most of what I consider to be Adobe's Super Hit Top 5 deal with website design. What does Photoshop have to do with website design, you might ask? Well, probably more than you know, unless you are a website designer. Photoshop is arguably the most common application used by website designers to present their ideas to clients, and there's a good reason for that. Creating a web page mock-up in Photoshop is a lot easier than creating it in Dreamweaver, because there's no need to create CSS files and control type and component positioning. Instead, the designer just places text and graphics where they're wanted, on a static page. But when the client accepts the design, the person who's going to create the website had to start over. The designer would send over the Photoshop file as a comp, and the website designer had to figure out how to convert the static illustration to a working page. You may have noticed I used a lot of past tense verbs in that previous sentence. The latest version of Photoshop can export individual components from the Photoshop file, such as graphics and CSS components for color and position, and these can then be imported into Dreamweaver. This is going to save website designers a lot of time. SuperHit 4 is a more powerful Behance. It's likely to be a hit with freelance designers, as well as with corporate advertising departments who are seeking a graphic artist, photographer, designer, or videographer who has a particular style, and who is in a specific city, and who has experience with a given subject. The talent search feature of Behance is going to help with that. But Behance continues to be a place where creatives can post their work, completed projects, or work in process, and they can get feedback and critique from their peers. Even the best creatives can develop tunnel vision, and as a result, they can make a colossal blunder. Here's an example. 
This week, Drake University in Des Moines, Iowa, became the butt of jokes on Adweek, Yahoo, Huffington Post, The Washington Post, The Des Moines Register, and a lot of late-night television programs, and now, finally, TechBiter Worldwide. All because of its advertising message for prospective students. The campaign is branded D+. If only the designer had allowed other creatives to see this work while it was still being developed, somebody surely would have pointed out the downside of using D+, in an advertisement for an educational institution. And Super Hit 5. Adobe Muse now has a sync text function. I reviewed Muse a few months ago, and I was impressed by its capabilities. But there were some significant shortcomings. Most websites have text that is repeated across pages. Addresses, phone numbers, copyright information, stuff like that. Dreamweaver uses library components for those kinds of items. Muse had no corresponding capability. Now it does. Earlier, I described writing and estimating the length of copy for publications in the 1980s. I almost wrote print publications, but that's the only kind of publication we had back then. No web, no ebooks, just publications. And they were all print. Well, then I'd send the typewritten pages to a typesetter. The typesetter would rekey what I had written, correcting my typos and creating some of their own. A day or two later, I'd get a galley proof, edit it for length, note the typographer's errors and return it for another go. A week or two later, the copy would all be complete. Then I'd get out the artboards, rulers, a T-square, an X-Acto knife, a waxing machine, and then I'd start sticking copy and headlines and illustrations in place on the artboards. Oh, the illustrations? Yeah. Well, while the text was being typeset, the photos had to be driven downtown so that they could be screened, cropped, and sized for printing. The sizes we requested was the size we got back. And it was the size we used in the publication. Period. No chance to change. Once all of the components were finally on artboards, they went to the print shop so that they could be photographed, converted to plates, and printed. Even a simple project back then would take weeks. And color? <laughs> Forget about it. Then came programs such as Ventura Publisher and Aldous PageMaker. And some desktop printers that, with special hardware, could print 1,000 dots per inch. That was good enough to make my own galleys. Everything still had to be stuck to layout boards, of course, but the schedule was reduced to less than half of what it used to be. It was exciting. For the past 10 years or so, maybe 15, it has been possible to design, create, and publish in print or online in hours, not days. And Adobe dares to challenge all that by opening the door to working on photography, design, video, and more wherever you are and whenever you want to? Well, I have this to say. Bravo, Adobe. In short circuits, during the Cold War, there was a joke about a race between a Russian and an American. It went like this. It was a two-person race. The American had won the race, and the supposed Soviet press account said, Soviet runner finishes second, while American runner was next to last. Well, in the race between Intel and advanced micro devices, Intel is next to last by a wide margin, and second place AMD continues to struggle. 
In 2011, AMD appointed Rory Reed to run the place. Now he has been replaced by Lisa Sue, who is the company's first female CEO. Reed will continue as an advisor until the end of the year. Not to sound too much like an old Soviet joke, but the board of directors said that Reed, who was a CEO for less than three years, had been planning for his succession, and now is the best time. Although the company is still far smaller than Intel, Reed had managed to make it profitable, in part because AMD chips are used in popular devices such as Microsoft's Xbox One and Sony's PlayStation 4. Sue came to AMD two years ago. Prior to being appointed CEO, she was the chief operating officer. She has a doctorate in electrical engineering from MIT and had previously worked for IBM. Reed had come to AMD from Lenovo. manufacturers thought that the hands-off systems that drivers could use by speaking to them would be less distracting than the push buttons and switches typically found in cars. As it turns out, that is exactly wrong. And Siri turns out to be the worst of the bunch. The least bad system, according to research sponsored by the American Automobile Association's Foundation for Traffic Safety, comes from Toyota. These systems often misunderstand what the driver has said, which frustrates the driver, who then stops concentrating on driving and attempts to make the voice-activated system understand. Research director David Strayer explained that the systems misunderstood drivers' commands so often that some motorists swore at the devices, distracting themselves from the task at hand. Strayer characterized Siri as all but useless in cars, while Toyota's e-tune system and Hyundai's Blue Link system were at least less distracting. Systems by Mercedes and General Motors were somewhere in the middle, more distracting than listening to a book on tape, not as bad as talking on a cell phone. No motorists were put at risk during the study. That's because the research was conducted using test subjects in a driving simulator. The project even gave the electronic devices an edge they wouldn't have in a real-world situation. The test subjects wore microphones. And on the subject of distracted driving, Volkswagen recently released a short video. Be sure to check the TechBiter Worldwide website because I have the video posted there. Manufacturers of PCs have spent several years waiting for the market to improve. Recession hurt, unfounded fears about Microsoft Windows 8 hurt, the popularity of handheld devices hurt. But I've been saying for a while that the desktop computer isn't dead, and research firms IDC and Gartner released numbers this week that suggest a modest revival is approaching. The demand dropped again this year when compared to last year's third quarter, but it dropped more slowly than expected. And because sales have been so slow for the past three years, many of the computers that are currently on desktops in offices and homes are beyond the age at which they should be replaced. The replacement desktop system might be a notebook computer, but it's unlikely to be a tablet. Certainly it's not going to be a phone. So there is still life in the market for what might be termed real computers. In fact, IDC and Gartner are both suggesting that they'll soon be reporting growth. 
and Lenovo is already seeing some improvement in sales. Hewlett-Packard, which will split the company into two companies, one focused on servers, software, and cloud technology, the other on legacy computers, has also seen improved sales. So has Dell. Microsoft's end of support for Windows XP forced some businesses whose computer users had antiques on their desks to upgrade the machines. That has helped manufacturers. Windows 10, the replacement for Windows 8, is being designed to be more palatable to corporate IT managers. That should help. IDC says that 78.5 million computers were shipped worldwide in the third quarter. That's a decline of less than 2% from last year versus the predicted drop of more than 4%. In the U.S., the number of units shipped was 17.3 million. Of course, shipped and sold are not the same, but the correlation is usually pretty close. According to Gartner, Lenovo, HP, Dell, Acer, and Asus combined to sell nearly 70% of all computers. That means the smaller manufacturers are the ones probably suffering the most pain. It is surprising, though, that Apple isn't listed among Gartner's top five manufacturers. In IDC's rankings, Asus is absent, and Apple is in the number five slot. Walter Isaacson's latest book, The Innovators, he's introduced me to Viktor Atanasov, one of many people who attempted in the first half of the 1900s to build a device that would simplify the process of complex calculations. I hadn't heard of Atanasov, and in addition to learning about his accomplishments, I was struck by two passages that are reminders of just how primitive technology was prior to the Second World War. Here's a quote from Isaacson. The machine was designed and hardwired with a single purpose, solving simultaneous linear equations. It could handle up to 29 variables. With each step, a Tanisoff's machine would process two equations and eliminate one of the variables, then print the resulting equations on 8 by 11 binary punch cards. The set of cards with the simpler equation would then be fed back into the machine for the process to begin anew, eliminating yet another variable. The process required a bit of time. The machine would, if they could get it to work properly, take almost a week to complete a set of 29 equations. Still, humans doing the same process on desk calculators would require at least 10 weeks. You know, today the calculations a Tanisoff's machine required a week to process would be completed in a second or less, even by the weakest desktop computer, and probably even on the average smartphone. Here is Isaacson again. Atanasov demonstrated a prototype at the end of 1939 and, hoping to get funding to build a full-scale model, typed up a 35-page proposal using carbon paper to make a few copies. Xerography had been invented by 1939, Chester Carlson did it in 1938, but it hadn't been patented yet, that didn't happen till 1942. So if you needed another copy of a 35-page proposal in 1939, you typed another copy of the 35-page proposal. The Innovators, How a Group of Hackers, Geniuses, and Geeks Created the Digital Revolution, was released last week. Isaacson is the president and CEO of the Aspen Institute, a nonpartisan educational and policy studies organization based in Washington. He has been the chairman and CEO of CNN, managing editor of Time magazine, 
and Isaacson's previous works include biographies of Steve Jobs, Benjamin Franklin, Albert Einstein, and Henry Kissinger. If you're interested in the history of computing, starting with Ada Lovelace's scientific article that described Charles Babbage's analytical engine in the 1840s and provided at that time the first description of a general-purpose computer, this is a book for you. You may already know that Babbage and Lovelace were about 100 years ahead of their time and that what they described couldn't be successfully constructed until manufacturing and machining techniques caught up with their designs in the 1940s. But you'll also meet many other people who played parts in developing the procedures and technologies that made computers possible. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the weekly podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. All music on TechBiter Worldwide is licensed under the Creative Commons, and information about performers is on the website, www.techbiter.com. I'm Bill Blinn, and if you'd like, you can also send me a message from the website. Thanks for listening. I look forward to talking with you again in a week.